This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce. This is Workers' Comp Matters, and I am glad to have you listen to us today. We have done many shows regarding workers' compensation issues. I am a practicing attorney. I have an office in Salem, Massachusetts, and I have been representing injured workers and their families in claims involving workers' compensation, social security, disability, and related um, topics. Today's guest is Dr. Patrice Whipple, and um, I became acquainted with our guest because I was reading a law journal that uh, reviewed a book, and the it was a book by Dr. Whipple, and it was uh, a book, the title of which intrigued me. The title of the book is Depraved Indifference, The Workers' Compensation System. And um, I was sufficiently interested in the subject to contact Dr. Whipple and ask her to be a guest on our show. I have read her book, and it is must-reading for anyone that wants to have uh, a better understanding of some of the flaws in uh, the workers' compensation system. So with that said, I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Patrice Whipple. She is... uh, uh, a person who has had a career in hospital health care and mental health administration. She has served on many community and state boards and as a board officer. She's also been involved in many civil rights and human rights issues over the years. Dr. Weppel, thank you for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you for inviting me, Alan. Well, let me get right to the title. It's a provocative title, Depraved Indifference. This is a term uh, that is familiar to many of us. Uh, those of us who watch Law & Order seem to see somebody is charged with the felony of depraved indifference every Wednesday at uh, 10 o'clock. And how does, how does that title fit into the workers' comp system? The uh, title, depraved indifference, that phrase, comes from New York State Penal Law 125.25, which defines murder in the second degree, an A1 felony, under circumstances evincing a depraved indifference to human life, he or she, recklessly engages in conduct which creates a grave risk of death to another person and thereby causes the death of another person. Okay, I know in your book and those of us who practice in the field, we know there are a great number uh, of injuries and deaths that occur every day in the workplace, many of which could have been avoided. Um, Is this the source of your uh, desire to put this uh, together in a book? Yes. I want to um, discuss it uh, from two points. Go right ahead. Uh, The first is um, how I I began this. I asked what I thought was a simple question, which is, what happens to injured workers one year, five years, ten years out? And um, I expected that I was going to be able to get answers to that from um, those um, departments within government which deal with uh, workers' comp, with labor issues, with uh, worker safety issues, etc. No one had those answers, and that was astonishing to me. The other thing that I want to talk about is um, the figures. Everybody quotes the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, figure on worker deaths. 
That figure is wrong. It's a gross underreport. BLS will tell you that almost 6,000 workers died from their work injuries during the last year for which they have completed the compilation of data, which is 2007. And that's horrifying enough. But they're off substantially. Ten times more than that number die from toxic chemical exposures and from other illnesses caused by their work that ultimately lead to their death. And what, in your view, uh, is the major failing in the system? And I'm going to use the word the system for the workers' comp system in being able to deal with this um, um, issue. The major problem is that there is no tort liability. An employer has no responsibility or accountability within the workers' comp system to any great extent for the injuries or the deaths that are caused by their negligence or ignoring of safety standards. And similarly, in the OSHA system, the possibility or probability of being held criminally liable, and that would be only for a death, not for maiming, not for serious injury, but only for death, is so unlikely to occur that it's only occurred a handful of times within the almost 40 years of OSHA's existence. The reason for that is because it is um, you have to prove that it was caused with willful intent uh, before it can be referred to DOJ, Department of Justice, uh, for prosecution. And even then, it is only a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of six months uh, in prison and a $70,000 fine. And because DOJ has so much on its plate already, the likelihood of their pursuing, even when it does get to DOJ for prosecution, the likelihood of their pursuing it uh, is minimal because they have so many other things on their plate which have uh, heavier penalties connected with it. We're talking about the confluence of two different systems, um, uh, the criminal justice system, and the civil justice correct. system. Correct, correct. Uh, is it your position that there sh- well, you've, you've mentioned there should be a tort remedy. Correct. Are you advocating that only in death cases or in no. cases? So no. Any case in which there's employer negligence. Correct. Let me take the devil's advocate position just Absolutely. for a moment. Absolutely. Go for it. Um, if we had representatives of industry here, I think the first thing they would say is, if we are mandated to provide universal coverage without fault, whether an injured worker is hurt by his own negligence, no negligence, or our own negligence, what we get in return is the immunity from being sued in those cases where we are negligent. How would, and we would probably also hear the premiums are high enough anyway in the current no fault comp system. If we put tort liability, pain and suffering damages back into the system, would it not collapse on itself because it the employers couldn't afford the premiums. Well, um, what you've presented is one way of looking at it. Uh, let me give you a little bit of history. The workers' comp system began in the 1880s um, in Germany. Bismarck was looking for a way to quell the angst, uh, the anger of the populace uh, after he had um, passed certain what he would have considered uh, reforms, uh, things like uh, making um, outlawing unions. And uh, what happened as a result was there were many worker deaths. So this was, workers' comp was an appeasement. It, got, it went from Germany to Great Britain. Now, Great Britain recognized many, many years ago that to not have employers be liable for 
the disease that cripples, the corporate negligence that uh, injures or kills, is no incentive to have a safer system. And so they instituted tort liability and criminal, and uh, more recently, criminal liability. Other countries have done similarly. We are the only country that I'm aware of that still holds with that quid pro quo. And while that quid pro quo of, in other words, you're not liable as an employer for the injury that uh, that you've caused, um, but uh, swift and certain wage compensation and medical treatment is your responsibility. Well, what has happened over the years is that the wage compensation um, has been whittled away, and the medical treatment has been delayed and denied practically away, and yet that employer is still not accountable. Now, does that seem like justice? No, because there's no recourse, and that obvious lack of recourse has left workers with nothing on their side. In fact, the insurance industry has a phrase for it. They call it starving them out. And by starving them out, they're referring to the worker who's been injured or killed. Wage compensation is now at 70% of poverty for a family of three, that's Mississippi, to a maximum of 170% of poverty, that's Washington, D.C., with most states at 120% of poverty. That is hardly decent wage compensation. What has happened is that over the years, that's what I'm talking about. It's been whittled away. Well, I will agree with you there that uh, uh, the benefit levels need to be adjusted and medical access and, and the payment for adequate medical services need to, need to be addressed uh, better. And uh, there needs to be a way of dealing with what you call – what I've heard referred to as starvation therapy of, of, of the, the uh, denial and uh, avoidance of, of otherwise legitimate claims – uh, that brings to mind, I'm sure you're aware of it, I think that people have been starting to uh, press uh, legally uh, the insurance companies and the employers who have uh, wrongfully denied claims. And you're familiar with the case in Michigan in which the RICO statute has been employed to bring to bear uh, a hammer over the heads of the insurers and the employers that are engaging in these practices. Yes. What, what can you tell us okay. about that case? Um, well, first of all, um, this is the first case like this. Uh, it's Brown v. Cassin's transport. And what they did here was to use the RICO statute. Um, to That's the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, otherwise yes. used in, in criminal uh, gangster and racketeering. Correct. And, uh, to, um, and here they're alleging mail fraud and wire fraud um, and the violations based on collusion between the uh, employer, the insurer, and the physician uh, providing uh, the care. And uh, the case was uh, denied, um, and then it was um, uh, returned on remand from the um, Supreme Court. So we, uh, we will await what happens here. I think this is a very exciting possibility. It's not something that one routinely has access to in a workers' comp case. We'll see what happens, and I think it's a very positive development and one we will uh, that bears watching. Now, and, and we were talking earlier about the fact that there's little financial incentive for employers to provide uh, a safe workplace. Again, let me take a, a bit of a devil's advocate uh, a position. First of all, I think most employers would tell you they would prefer. They would rather not have an accident occur. They'd rather not lose an experienced worker to either a, a catastrophic or a, a, 
a long-term injury or, God forbid, a death. Uh, but they would also be facing the increased cost of workers' comp premiums. They'd be facing potential OSHA uh, fines and penalties. And in many states, including Massachusetts, where I'm most familiar, in cases of serious misconduct of an employer, uh, of a safety violation, Massachusetts, our a statute calls for serious and willful misconduct. There is a substantial financial penalty attached to the employer of paying a doubling of all compensation benefits. Why wouldn't all of those uh, factors, uh, direct financial and indirect financial factors, um, be enough for employers to uh, try to create as safe a workplace as possible? Uh, okay, you've raised a large number of issues. Let me see if I can address a few of them. Let me first talk about uh, OSHA fines. OSHA fines have been so watered down that the average fine is less than a thousand dollars. OSHA's um, OSHA as an agency has so few. Uh, inspectors and so little funds that it can, on average, only get to an employer once every 133 years. That's pretty distressing. Uh, wildlife, um, uh, Federal Wildlife Agency has, uh, has more inspectors. But let's talk about the fines. So what we said is $1,000 for a serious violation. Less than that, actually, $909 is the average fine. Worse than that, in almost half of all death cases, the fine is never paid and OSHA fails to collect. Now, when you look at, and let's go to workers' comp here instead of OSHA, um, when you look at the benefits as a percent of wages, it's those benefits are 33% less than what they were at the high in, uh, in 1992. So while um, benefits have gone down substantially, and as a percent of wages, they've also gone down, uh, there's still the griping uh, from employers and insurers about how this is costing them so much money. And uh, every time they do, what happens is the, um, uh, uh, all of the benefits get whittled down again. You know, this might be an opportunity time to take a, a short break, and we will do that, and we'll come back with Dr. Patrice Weppel in a few more moments. Want to know more about Legal Talk Network host and attorney Alan S. Pierce? He's nationally known for his expertise in workers' comp and the law. Appointed by two governors to the State Workers' Compensation Advisory Council on the editorial board of the Journal of Workers' Compensation, leading lawyers across the country with a commitment beyond passion. Find out more about Attorney Pierce on the Legal Talk Network website under About Us. Workers' Comp Matters with Attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news, talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. Welcome back. Uh, This is Alan Pierce. We are talking to Dr. Patrice Whipple, author of the book, Depraved Indifference, the Workers' Compensation System. Dr. Weppel, where we left off, uh, we were talking about some of the financial incentives for employers to maintain a safe workplace. Um, 
And I know you talked a bit about OSHA and OSHA fines and their inadequacies. Uh, is there something else you want to add on that? Uh, yes, uh, two more points. Um, unlike uh, the Mine Safety Health uh, Administration, um, OSHA, um, there is nothing in the OSHA regulations that forces an employer to correct the violations while they are in negotiation to reduce um, the um, violation um, and to negotiate uh, the penalty downward. So that forces OSHA. That puts the pressure on. Uh, it's in the employer's best monetary interest for them to keep on uh, fighting uh, the violation and fighting the uh, penalty at the same time that OSHA is being pressured to negotiate uh, to settle in order to have that um, uh, violation ameliorated. Workers' comp is now costing at a hundred uh, the injuries and the deaths um, are costing one hundred and seventy billion dollars a year, of which only a little over a quarter, twenty seven percent, are being paid by the employer and the employer's insurer. Almost half, forty four percent, falls on the families of the injured or deceased worker, and another 18% ends up being paid by taxpayers, and probably the additional 10%, which gets woven, snuck into healthcare, emergency, et cetera, et cetera. Now, your book is fascinating because you actually spend several chapters uh, giving specific uh, case studies or case histories of individuals who have been victimized by uh, the workers' compensation system and the behavior of the insurer in denying payment or delaying payment. Yes. Uh, but toward the end of the book, you indicate, uh, in your opinion, there are numerous recommendations that, that you've made. I think I've counted about 12 or 13 of them. What are some of your recommendations to help um, uh, cure the problems that you see uh, endemic to the system? Um, yes, there are 13 recommendations, um, but I'll only highlight a few here. Um, the first is that there needs to be tort liability, just as has been done in other countries. We need to have the employer be held accountable for the injuries, the illnesses, the deaths that the employer causes. Uh, and you should be able to, as an injured worker or the family of the deceased worker, be able to bring suit in, in civil court. Um, now, I don't say that this should be instead of workers' comp, but probably more like the um, the Jones Act for maritime workers. And the Jones Act is the equivalent of a workers' comp system of for, sorts. For, uh, for maritime workers, that is correct. Um, but unlike workers' compensation, an injured or occupationally exposed merchant marine has a right to choose their treating physician, can be compensated for pain and suffering, and most significantly can sue. So that's one recommendation, tort liability. Um, obviously, there are a number of recommendations uh, with regard to what OSHA needs to do. And certainly, I have just mentioned a few of them, the um, uh, the uh, violations that are always being um, uh, knocked downward so that um, uh, the employer doesn't end up with a willful violation so that they can't be held criminally liable in those uh, minimal number of cases. And do you, well, do you foresee perhaps under the Obama administration a change in um, the functioning of OSHA as a resource uh, to 
to um, oversee worker safety in the workplace? I am hopeful. I am hopeful, yes. Um, however, uh, it, it isn't going to happen uh, without uh, a lot of pressure coming to bear in order to make that happen. Let me give you just one example. Um, there are um, hundreds of thousands of uh, chemicals. The, the argument is whether it's 100,000 or whether it's 650,000 or somewhere in between. There are 650 chemicals, uh, 1,000 chemicals identified by American Chemical Society in use in industry. Some would argue that only 100,000 are in use. There are only 500 that have PELS, permissible exposure limits, established by OSHA. None were added or changed during the Bush administration. And the ones that we have, for the most part, are 40 years out of date based on more recent scientific information. By contrast, the EU regulates 30,000 chemicals and many uh, used in, in industry and many that we allow here haven't been allowed in the EU for You're decades. You're talking about the European Union. Yes, yes. Now, if we had universal or single-payer health care in this country, might we not look differently at the cost of worker injuries and worker deaths? And might we not see, as the EU does, they have actually costed it out. And they see that the cost of regulation is minimal by comparison to the cost of worker deaths uh, and injuries. And the benefit is far superior for saving lives and saving injuries and saving health. And I will say that uh, for those of you who are interested in facts, figures, numbers, and statistics, uh, Dr. Weppel's book uh, contains uh, a great deal of, of that type of information that's uh, a little too esoteric to get into uh, on a show with the time limitations that we have. What else do you see? We talked about single payer. We talked about overhauling OSHA. We talked about a return to a tort system. Again, I'm not sure the political uh, feasibility of, of some or all of those, but that's another issue for another day. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit, um, Alan, about criminal liability for health and safety violations. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act uh, was passed um, rather rapidly following the Enron scandal. And... Um, Walter Forbes, for example, uh, received a 12-year prison sentence and a $3.2 billion uh, fine or restitution order, etc. I could go on. So if we can find crimes of fraud and cover-up uh, to be in our criminal justice system and to find that magnitude of penalty, why can't we look the same at worker deaths that uh, are caused by negligence of the employer uh, or outright failure to um, uh, and refusal to follow safety and health. Uh, one way would be um, to have a corporate manslaughter um, act uh, that also, as Canada has done, uh, which also finds uh, senior officers liable in, uh, uh, that is those with uh, operational uh, as well as policymaking authority and uh, find them liable when they fail to um, make the workplace safe. And by the way, I'm aware of, of uh, a handful of cases here in Massachusetts where 
companies and corporate offices have been prosecuted criminally for uh, egregious deaths that have occurred in the workplace. So it, it, it occurs. It's rare, but it occurs. Uh, well, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters. Um, I'm sure that this is will remain a controversial subject. I'm sure that you will be as outspoken as you have been in your book and with us uh, today on Workers' Comp Matters. I thank you very much for the work and research you put into this, and it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking about this with you today. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me. So much to uh, talk about, so little time. I know that. Well, we hope uh, those of you out there will join us for another Workers' Comp Matters show. We uh, enjoy putting these shows together for you. Thanks for listening. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I hope we you go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.